0: Well, hello, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for attending my session today. Uh, I'm I'm very excited to see so many people turning out uh, to hear about SaaS, which is uh, clearly my passion, and glad to see so many of you share it as well. Um, My name's Todd Golding, and I am a partner solutions architect with AWS. Uh, That means basically I spend my days working with customers and partners who are either migrating solutions to SaaS or SaaS or building brand new SaaS uh, solutions, and basically helping them dig in and figure out best practices and sort of how to deliver all that and achieve the SaaS delivery model on top of AWS. And when I talk to customers about this, they typically come to me with this sort of common question, which is, um, okay, I'm, I'm ready for SaaS, I'm ready to go all in with SaaS, but what are the tools, what are the frameworks, Like, what's the prepackaged answer to this problem for me? How can I find my way there and do it efficiently and sort of leverage all the best practices everybody else is doing? And for me, it ends up being a very challenging answer for that question. Because when you look at SaaS and you look at the domain of the architectural and design problems for SaaS, you find that SaaS spans and intersects with so many of the core architectural principles that are just common to every solution, right? We have identity, we have scale and availability, we have all these notions that we talk about when we talk about uh, applications, and the truth is there's no sort of separate silo or box that SaaS lives in. Instead, what I find is that SaaS ends up being this extra dimension or this extra layer that sort of intersects and overlays all of these common and core architectural principles. And so when when I work with customers on this and I talk to them about what their needs are, it's more about... How does SaaS influence each one of these sort of architectural concepts? So if we look at identity, for example, right? We've all dealt with identity and potentially built identity in our solutions. We're familiar with authorization and authentication and roles and those concepts. But when we fall into a SaaS multi-tenant environment, what we find is that SaaS brings all these layers of additional considerations. Like, how am I going to deal with getting tenants into the system? How am I going to link tenants to users? How's all that stuff get provisioned? What's the life cycle of all that? There's this whole new realm of questions that kind of bolts onto identity um, from a SaaS perspective. And I have a whole new set of considerations that I have to be thinking about. So identity really is whatever the core values of identity are, plus whatever all these additional SaaS values are. Agility is a great example here, right? Everybody wants agility. Everybody would like to have a great DevOps experience and have great CI, CD and be rolling out features and functions all the time. Um, But imagine in the world of SaaS, right? In SaaS where the lifeblood of SaaS, in fact, is how rapidly can I deploy new features? How efficiently and effectively can I deploy those new features so that I'm constantly responding to market changes and customer needs? Well, in the In the universe of SaaS, that's just essential. In fact, that's a lot of the reason why people go to SaaS. So that tends to set the agility bar. A lot higher for SaaS environments. We can't have downtime in multi tenant environments, right? We can't sort of have a maintenance window where we're down and we're rolling updates um, because that would cascade across all of our tenants. So as we look at agility, we have to say, what are the principles and, and what are the tenants of SaaS there that we have to be thinking about? And that's the theme spanning all of these bits, right? And that's a theme really that I want to talk about today, which is okay, as I work with these customers, what are the patterns and the architectural design considerations? and the themes I see for how people are addressing these bits. And we won't be able to touch on all of these uh, and the time we have today, but I'll focus in on a few of these and give you some idea of some of the, some of the higher priority areas that are common patterns and, and considerations. Right, and that, by the way, another aspect of this is how does AWS and its services influence my approach to each one of these problems? But before we dig into the specifics of architecture, I wanna step back for a second Because there's sort of a macro sort of question here I get, which is just, well, what's what's a good way to implement multi-tenancy in general? Like, what are the themes you see, Todd, as you talk to customers and you work with their solutions? What are the patterns, right? And it's... And and while there's any number of different ways people could say I'm going to build a multi-tenant solution, I have found three very specific buckets that I think most solutions fall into and that most patterns that customers are following. And it's this silo bridge and this pool model that I have here. And this theme of silo bridge and pool model sort of cascades through a lot of the discussion of the patterns that we have. On the left, you see the silo. And the silo really represents an environment where I'm going to put all my tenants in a fully... Isolated infrastructure. Each tenant is going to have their own underlying infrastructure and their own footprint, and they'll be entirely isolated from one tenant to the next. And uh, sure, I'll bolt on on the top of that some sort of onboarding and billing and shared experience so the tenant's onboarding looks Uh, and feels like a a seamless experience. But under the hood, I'm going to provision separate architecture. And you can imagine why this would be appealing to some tenants, right? Because they're either coming from a legacy environment, and this is a natural transition for them, or um, they're saying I'm in some high-compliance environment where my tenants or my customers won't let me uh, run in anything but uh, a siloed model. So totally valid model. Um, The bridge model, as its name sort of implies, is, is a bit of a hybrid model here. The bridge says, well, for some layers of my architecture, I'm going to uh, have a multi-tenant shared model where the tenants share the infrastructure. And for other layers or groups of services or however you want to think about your architecture, those might remain single-tenant. And I'll have some some mix and match of that based on the profile of my application and where multi-tenancy might fit in my domain. And then the last model, the pool model, is the all-in sort of model. And that model, what we're saying is, um, all the tenants will all go into a shared environment. They will share all of the infrastructure. Now, the interesting question I get, in fact, I got this, this question just this week while I was meeting with a customer here at, at the conference, which was, okay, so which one's the best one? Like, wh- which one should I be using? And I hate to do this, but I always end up answering this question with another question because the reality is all three of these models are valid, and there's all these other factors that you have to think about to decide is going to align best with where you want to go with SaaS. So um, I kind of have this natural sort of discussion when I talk about that in, in terms of deciding which models might fit for you or which hybrids of these models might fit for you. And usually if I lay this out and sort of put silo and pool side by side and sort of show the natural tension that exists between the silo and pool models, it's a very easy way to sort of tease out the tension in this problem, and help people understand um, what what sort of factors might lean me one way or the other in making this choice. Right on the silo side, where I've got this, this isolated infrastructure, you can imagine what the pros are on this side. On this on this iso- in the isolated world, I can very much go to highly com- uh, compliant areas where there's big regulatory needs, and really say to my customers, hey, you're running in this, this isolated model and, and we can uh, meet your compliance needs. Or in general, because I'm coming from a legacy environment and I've already got a, a single tenant kind of model, the partition nature of this aligns with the way I've built my infrastructure. But the bigger bits here for people on the silo model is often what the sort of support and deployment and the risk profile of the silo is, right? Because I'm in a siloed environment, I'm not going to get cross-tenant impacts, right? So one tenant can't do something and and impose a load that will adversely affect another tenant, right? In a pool model, that absolutely can happen. Tenants could, depending on your implementation and how effective you've been, have one tenant could adversely affect another. Silo not possible. The other bits is here I can do very tenant-specific tuning in the silo model. I can tweak and tune it and say, this tenant's going to get these kind of customizations, and these customizations will help them out. And the last one, maybe, is the most important one here, is you'll get this notion of tenant-level availability. If a tenant goes down, only that tenant goes down. It doesn't somehow ripple across your entire system. Of course, this isolated model, the siloed model, comes with uh, some downsides to it as well, right? Obviously, if, if I'm going to distribute this and have all these separate stacks, I'm going to find that cost and agility are going to be undermined to some degree. right? I can only do so much. Yes, I can buy my resources effectively and I can do things in the siloed model to try to be cost efficient, but it's never going to be as cost efficient as a a pooled model. Um, I'm also going to have agility problems. If I surround all this with um, automation and I do a great job with DevOps and I've got great scripting here, I'm still going to have a more complex model. You can imagine what it means to uh, provision an entire stack in a siloed model as part of my onboarding, there's going to be more moving parts to that. It's going to be harder for me to live up to my agility goals. And then also here, the last bits are more around deployment and management here. If you can imagine all these bits are distributed, how do I create a centralized experience for management and monitoring and deployment and analytics data that I have to gather? Now when it's distributed across all these different stacks, it's much harder for me to aggregate it all into a, a common view. Definitely can be done, but more challenging on that side. On the pool side of this, we see the absolute inverse of this. On the pool, we get, uh, because we're in an all-shared model, we get the agility profile that aligns better with what we probably want for a SaaS model, right? Because everything's in a shared environment, it de- tends to be easier for us to uh, have a, a more efficient CI/CD story and align with a lot of the mechanisms that are used for CI/CD and, and uh, continuous deployment. I can also do, have a whole lot more levers and knobs and dials for tuning cost, because my tenants are all in one environment there's all kinds of new things I can do to really take and align tenant consumption and my infrastructure consumption to, to really return a lot of value back to the business in that model right um, Also because all of this is under sort of one hood, all the centralized management, the aggregation of analytics those bits are easier because it's all running in a shared environment. But the challenge of the, the pool model is um, if I'm going all in with the pool model, I better have a great DevOps uh, <laughs> footprint in my organization. I have better have really good automation, really good robust deployment models because if, if, if there's something broken in the way that I'm deploying in a shared environment, it will cascade across all of my tenants and my entire system will be down for all of my customers. So for me, that bar of DevOps goes up much higher in this environment. Now, um, the, the cons of this side of the world... Also, uh, sometimes apply to compliance. Obviously, if I'm running in a siloed model, I mean, uh, I can offer better compliance in a compliance in a pooled model. People, some some uh, tenants may not be comfortable living in that sort of universe, right? Uh, and they're exposed to these cross-tenant impacts. That can be something that's a downside for them. So those are the bits that we sort of consider as we trade off the models, the reality is as we consider trading off those models, um, you're not going to be all in on one side or all in on the other. I just put those up there as extremes, and that sort of drives the conversation, and then we'll talk about where's your business really trying to get to? Are you driven all by the agility, and should you lean a little more towards pool, or you really just need to get your current legacy system moved over, and maybe that'll move you more towards silo, or you're just in a compliant environment where you need that silo model. Um, the last bit of conceptual uh, con- uh, slides here I have is around this sort of landscape uh, for SAS, right? Because a lot of people say, What's the reference architecture for SAS? Show me a reference architecture. And there is no easy ability to say, Here it is, here's the blueprint, here's exactly what this reference architecture looks like, because there are so many variations in how SAS solutions build. But I, bought the, I built this conceptual architecture uh, uh, model just so we could have a Sort of a foundation for the concepts we're going to dig into here. And it's broken into sort of three dimensions here. So on your right side, you'll see there's an application view. And those moving parts are these big building blocks of architecture that are the actual bits that are used to construct your application, right? And so now, if you think about SaaS, we've got to look at identity. Identity is a huge area we've got to talk about and we've got to dig into and understand what the patterns and practices there are and what the moving parts of that are. Um, Tenant isolation AWS offers you a wide range of different ways of sort of separating one tenant from another, and at different levels of granularity. So we have to dig in and figure out what are those different mechanisms, how do we enforce them, how do we, what are the patterns there that really work for people, and what are some of the trade-offs. And then data partitioning, which is the standard SaaS sort of discussion, probably the most talked-about area uh, uh, in terms of multi-tenancy, which is how can I separate and partition my data. But data partitioning gets more interesting because AWS has such a, a large set of storage options, right? I give RDS and Redshift and DynamoDB, uh, and those add new dimensions to what are my, what are my options there and what does multi-tenancy looks like? look like. So we have to hit on those. And that application view really focuses on building an application. But equally important to me is this operational view you see on the left-hand side. So if I'm going all in with... With SaaS, I'm going all, I need to go all in and have a really robust operation story. So I have to be able to ha- think about the multi-tenant impacts on things like management monitoring and profiling analytics. How am I going to do billing and metering? Uh, and a lot of your agility will come out of how, how multi-tenancy ends up landing in those bits. Now, for our discussion today, we, we're going to focus more on these application view. I'll hit a little bit on these operational views, but in the scope of the time we have, it, we're mostly going to focus on those, the application bit of this. But the third dimension of this that I really think is super important because it's a theme that carries through all of this is uh, this notion of agility, which is sort of over the top of this and overarching all of it. So every one of these bits, identity, tenant isolation, management and monitoring, every discussion of these bits is going to be somehow influenced uh, by how you're approaching agility. And um, we've always talked about in development this natural tension between the business side of the house and the technical side of the house and those tensions have always existed and we've always tried to figure out features and functions versus stability and architectural trade-offs but in saas organizations i see an entirely different dynamic here where the actual architecture you're building and the st- approaches you're taking to your architecture have a very big influence influence on how the, the tiering of your solution is offering, uh, offered, the cost model that you can offer, and how successful the business will ultimately be, and how much agility they have in offering different flavors to, uh, to the different kinds of customers you might encounter. Or how quickly you can pivot from, we thought our SaaS vision was this, but now that we've got a, a thousand customers in our system, it's actually this. And how quickly can my architecture move from this model to this model? Uh, and then the business is always going to be pushing in here because they're going to say, hey, I'm in this SaaS model. Uh, we need to be turning features out faster. We need to respond to competitive forces faster. That's the whole reason we went to SaaS. Have you, uh, what are you doing technically to make that possible for me? So I see this accentuated and emphasized in the SaaS world in ways I haven't seen in other environments. So let's dig into identity as the first of those application views, right? And... Most, Like I said earlier, most of you have already sort of dealt with identity and have some notion probably of the fundamentals of of auth and auth. But when I dig in and talk about identity with customers, I find that there's these other topics that they're interested in talking about as well. And this is a handful of them. We can't hit them all today, but these were the ones that come up most frequently to me. So they're interested in understanding what's the provisioning lifecycle. Like, how do I automate the creation of a tenant? How do I end up binding the notion of, my user identity to my tenant identity, and how does all that flow in a way that um, I'm controlling and managing access to resources inside the AWS environment. And that sort of dovetails into this notion of security and isolation, right? All multi-tenant environments, no matter where you're building them, um, have to deal with this issue of if I'm going to put people side-by-side in an environment, what am I doing? When I, how am I answering the question for customers? What, how isolated am I from that tenant? What is your identity doing to assure that nobody else can see my data and nobody else can see the resources in my environment? And this very much connects to the identity story because the identity is the path in, and with that path we have to attach some mechanism to it that makes sure that we're hardening that boundary between access and, and controlling access to those resources. And the last bit is uh, one that's probably more influenced by the sort of the evolution and the... The growth of microservice design and the decomposition of systems into smaller services. As people built these much more decoupled systems and these much smaller services, this notion of tenant context and the fact that tenant context in a multi-tenant environment has to flow through all the interactions between the web of services that are in your environment um, creates this uh, extra need for another flavor of identity, of flowing uh, tenant context through along with user context. So we'll look at how that works as well. So let's start with just the provisioning lifecycle part of that, right? What does it mean to get a new tenant in your environment? And by no means is this meant to be the ultimate diagram to say this is the way it's always done, but these are the common moving parts I see in this problem, right? So essentially a tenant shows up and many of us have signed up for SaaS solutions and you essentially land on some landing page and you're going to provide your fundamentals of who you are as a user, but you're also going to provide information about who you are as a tenant. What's your name as a tenant, which plan am i signing up for Free tier, bronze, platinum, what am i doing um, And uh, once i sort of fill out that entire form i'm going to Submit that form and then i'm going to go through a multi-phase process of actually provisioning and getting your Footprint as a SaaS tenant created. And that first step of That process goes along the bottom here where you'll see The use of an identity broker and identity provider and This is a very traditional sort of identity relationship I've relied, hopefully, on some third-party solution. Auth0, Octa, Ping. There's all kinds of great partners who implement these solutions. And they're going to provide the fundamentals of getting my user created. Uh, they'll, and they'll give me also a pluggable construct. So by using this identity broker, I can use the identity broker to isolate myself from individual providers. So who I use as the provider, who I use for MFA, who I use for each one of the dimensions of Identity gets hidden from me via the identity broker, right? Um, so through this process, I sign up, I create my user, my, I do some validation process to say I am who I am, and now the second phase of this, which is sort of across the middle of this diagram, which is um, how do I actually now go about provisioning the actual tenant, right? So I have the user, but I still don't have a tenant. And in the tenant flow here, you'll see I'll go through some tenant management service, That service will provide some degree of isolation of the data and the constructs that are there. And then on the other bits of this, the parts people often overlook is, I also have to integrate with any third-party systems that may be part of my tenant experience. In this case, I've shown billing here. It's very common for people to rely on a third-party billing system uh, as part of their multi-tenant solution. And as part of creating a tenant, I have to indicate to the billing system which which type of tenant you are, which plan did you sign up, and that becomes the account management's view into this universe. Um, And then the last bit of this um, is the creation of this IAM policy. And we're going to dig into this more, but as part of doing this and creating this tenant, I need to create policies that will scope my access to resources. And this is the natural moment at which this happens. And then i showed one optional bit here, which is for some multi-tenant environments, provisioning a domain and creating a domain uh, is part of that. So you'll have each tenant have their own domain and create a certificate as part of that. When this is all done, i've got a tenant created, got a user created, and there's a binding now between those two, and i'm ready to go. So what does that actually look like, though, from a, a flow in terms of landing in here, right? Because I've said I've created this user, but now it's how the user actually auth, and what are the moving parts of that solution? Well, you can imagine the auth part of that is pretty straightforward. It is what you're used to. I hit the web app. It redirects to the identity broker. It goes to the provider. It gets the bits about my data, and it returns to me an identity token. But at the moment it returns the identity token, I haven't really solved the SaaS identity part of the problem. Because just getting in and getting an identity token It isn't enough. It hasn't really said I've constrained your view of the universe in any significant way. Now, you could rely on the app to try to do some of that work. But um, what I like to see here is these IAM policies that we provisioned in the prior step. I've, I've got roles and I've got a set of policies that I provisioned specifically for this tenant. And now, what I'll use is the STS service from AWS. I'll go out and assume role with a web identity as a As a mechanism I get through STS, I take your ID token, I take the role you want, and that role then has bound to it the set of policies I created for this tenant, and then those policies now control and scope my access to resources, and that's all managed through this temporary token that's returned to me. So now this temporary token and my ID token flow back, and my interaction with all the AWS resources is now constrained to a view that is only appropriate for that tenant. And for me this is an excellent way to, to sort of have an extra layer of isolation even if nobody else is demanding it, it's something you should want as a way of sort of assuring yourself that you've created these boundaries and, and eliminated needs for cross-tenant access. Now IAM is really handy in this context. If you've looked at IAM, IAM lets you control the, like, the kinds of operations that are available on a resource and the scope and the visibility of those resources and I can apply them at different granularities to different resources. So you can imagine in a universe where I'm, partic- I'm uh, provisioning tenant resources, uh, I'm provisioning uh, uh, CPU, I, I'm sorry, I'm instances, I'm provisioning tables, I'm provisioning S3 buckets, and each of those could belong to different tenants and I'm using IAM as the tool to scope and control access to them. The last bit of this is tenant context. I mentioned this This problem with how does the tenant context flow through this? And I'll show you one of the mistakes here that I made when I built one of the SaaS applications I first built, which was I had my normal pages here, right? You hit your home page, you hit your catalog service, hit your card service. And as part of hitting each one of those, every single time I hit the catalog, for example, I said, well, I need to know who the catalog is for the current tenant that's logged in. Well, how do I resolve that? I'll go over to the tenant service and I'll find out who the current tenant is, resolve that, get context for that tenant. And then uh, and the cart service needs to resolve that. The cart will go and do the same thing. And quickly, this uh, became a huge problem for me, right? Because the tenant management service now became a bottleneck of my system, um, right? And imagine this in a universe where I have 200 microservices or 1,000 microservices, all of which are going back to some tenant service to continually resolve their context. Well, now you start throwing cash and you start throwing compute at the tenant service to try to solve this problem, which is a problem you should have never had to begin with. And this is where the standards for auth tools and the tools that are out there can solve this problem for you and allow you to inject uh, the context that you need and flow it through the system. So instead of using the tenant service, I'm going to introduce an auth service, which is one of the ID providers that's out there. Uh, It's my identity broker. And when I first come in and uh, and I auth, I'm going to get back a Jot token. That Jot token is going to have claims in it, and I'm going to configure that Jot token with my true SaaS identity. So not just my user identity, but my tenant identity and my role and whatever other data that I think is relevant that needs to follow me and be bundled as part of um, walking through all of these services. And then that token will flow through to the individual services and uh, essentially provide me with, Um, The context that follows me everywhere I go with no need to sort of round trip and go resolve it. And this just relies on OAuth and OpenID Connect, very open standards for passing these tokens around. So it's more about just leveraging the tools that are already there. So what are the big takeaways from the, from the identity part of this problem? Well, I hope you see that the identity problem when you're thinking about SaaS is certainly a much bigger problem than just how to get in the front door of your app. Uh, The bigger point here is, Lean on the third-party tools. Lean on the octas and the off zeros and the pings and the duos of the universe and the partner ecosystem to give you the innovation that you need to build your, the identity parts of your solution. You don't want to be sort of home gro- building this all on your own in a homegrown model and then binding to that and then all of a sudden new capabilities are showing up in the identity space and you have to spend all this effort and energy to try to unwind that. That's a very difficult path. If you can somehow bind to one of these other solutions And use the identity broker pattern, right? So put the identity broker pattern there let the, Treat these resources as pluggable resources And use them as you need So who, who you're using for MFA today Could be one provider Tomorrow you could say I'm going to swap it out and use somebody else right? The broker gives me the ability to do that And keeps me from being bound uh, directly To any one provider's identity solution um, The other bit of this is I feel like automation is super important here Um, I feel like um, uh, people, sometimes they build all these robust mechanisms with all this policy and isolation management, these identity mechanisms, uh, but they don't put full automation and regression around all of these bits, right? So um, I'm relying on these policies to enforce isolation, but what am I doing to validate that that's actually working? And what happens if something goes wrong and a a hole gets opened in my security? How do I identify that? How do I catch that? Uh, Invest here in, in automation every way you can. Um, hopefully you see that the tenant context can, can be resolved here uh, by using some of the uh, existing mechanisms and you can introduce this notion of SaaS identity. And really the last bullet point is probably the most important one to me, which is um, you have to think about how identity actually lands in your developer experience, right? If as a developer I'm very aware of how, what we've done with identity and I, it's a part of my everyday development experience, my productivity is not going to be especially good. So even though there's a lot of moving parts to identity to get it all working, my hope is that's still a very seamless experience where that, those tokens just flow through and they become part of what you bind to and use as a developer, but you're not continually baking security policies directly into every service you're writing. If you are, you should at least ask yourself whether, whether that's a good, a good implementation and whether your architecture is really doing for you what you want. The next area we want to look at is isolation. Um, Uh, And to me, isolation is just a given. Um, Almost every customer I deal with has some variation of isolation in their multi-tenant solutions. Yes, people like the pool environment, but invariably the the forces of business and the needs of of customers will lead customers down some flavor of isolation. So the question is, what are the different ways you can implement isolation with AWS? What are the common SACS techniques for getting these isolation? Well, there's probably multiple patterns, but the patterns I see the most um, clearly full stack isolation, we've kind of talked about that a little bit, where we give each customer their own, um, their own stack. But what do we use, what AWS constructs do we do, re- use to, to realize that? Um, network isolation, so here, what networking constructs, VPCs, subnets, what are the mechanisms we can use to isolate customers? And then the last one, layered isolation, right? Um, are there are ways in my, at my app level that I can have tiers or layers or clusters of services that have their own isolation schemes. The simplest one to talk about full stack is one we've Already sort of hit on, right? separate separate stacks, separate Bits. But there is one nuance to this, which is even in full Stack isolation, i want to project the the, the the illusion of a fully Shared multi-tenant experience to the actual tenant who's Consuming this environment. I want them to have no Awareness of the fact that they're running in siloed stacks. So the onboarding and and the setup of the billing experience, and those bits that are sort of horizontal to all your tenants sort of sit on top of this to me. Uh, And they sit on top of this, and then they're directing the traffic and routing the traffic to land in the appropriate stacks. Um, The other bit of this is um, that, you know, I don't really want you to think of of this is purely an EC2-based model, right? I can get full-stack isolation with any of the compute models. I can certainly use containers and put containers in clusters and have clusters be a way of achieving isolation just like I could do with EC2, right? Um, The big bit of this model is obviously I'm biting off a huge provisioning uh, model here. Setting up these environments and automating the provisioning of these environments is is a big undertaking. Now, one way I've seen people achieve... Uh, full stack isolation, is by using AWS linked accounts. So if you've looked at linked accounts, linked accounts let me sort of have a a payer account and these child uh, accounts associated with them. And the nice part of a linked account is essentially all the resources that I allocate inside of a linked account are visible in that one context. And the better part of that is that the billing side of the system, right, if you go look at your AWS bill and how it's aggregated and viewed, I can see each linked account as a separate, uh, a separate portion of the bill. And this gives me a very natural way to say, what's this particular tenant cost to me? What's the, how can I correlate their infrastructure consumption with the actual bill from AWS? Very natural fit here. Um, it also is sometimes a good console experience for people because they can go in and say, in the console, I can see what's going on with this tenant in this in this very specific context. The challenge of this model is it's not a great fit for uh, every SaaS solution, right? Because um, if you tell me we're only going to have 10 cu- uh, customers or 100 customers and we want to use account as our siloed model, I'm saying. That's probably okay. That's going to scale. But if you say we're going to have 100, but we expect to scale to 10,000 or we want the possibility of scale to 10,000 or 50,000, well, uh, the account-based model and the silo-based model for this is not going to scale very effectively with you, right? You're going to have to think about, uh, A, just linked accounts have limits on them, but also then how am I going to set a... uh, account limits and how am I going to deal with the default limits for each one of these environments. The orchestration of that doesn't end up scaling very effectively and it becomes a much more complex problem. But totally viable if, you're, if you have a more limited set of tenants in this pool. Now the, the model I like to advocate is what I call hybrid isolation. Um, so for me, the purest in me, and I know this isn't practical for everybody else, is you said, if you could get here the ideal way, and somehow get the best of isolation but still get the agility and, uh, that you really want in a SaaS solution. Um, I'd like to start with having everything be uh, multi-tenant shared if I could, right? So I create my shared environment. I create all the great DevOps around that. I create all the agility around that. I get all the goodness that I want out of that experience, including the cost optimization I want. And then... If somebody says they want an isolated environment or they're Willing to write a big enough check, which is what uh, typically Happens, and the business says, well, they'll only run if they Run in an isolated environment, i will carve out out of my Multi-tenant environment a single copy or clone of my multi-tenant Environment for that one tenant, but i will say that i am not Going to allow one-off variation for that tenant, right? So i'm going to resist the temptation for one off variation there i'm going to try to keep the same devops tooling i want features and functions as they come out to push to each tenant in a universal way because to me the minute i carve one of these out and the minute i let it to have its own sort of path and its own customizations i've lost all the promise of of saas and agility here right so for me this is the constant struggle and it's a real struggle for many people inside their businesses because If somebody says, well, it's already carved out, it's already separate, and they don't really understand the cost associated with, oh, yeah, but now as we want to roll new features and new functions and we're changing them in the base, we can't roll them to everybody else. And suddenly what started out as this great vision for SaaS is suddenly back to the same thing you had before you went to SaaS, right? Constant struggle, uh, and I I know I've been inside for those struggles myself. They're never easy. But if somehow the purist in me can get you there, that's where I'd like you to get to. Now, network isolation is a much clearer story, right? We just, we could take, for example, VPCs, and we could say, I'm going to create a tenant for each VPC, uh, and then I will do something with peering with VPCs, where uh, the VPCs will be create, the peered VPC will create my management uh, view of all these different VPCs. So that's my view of getting a cross-tenant view of all the activity going on inside those VPCs. But as I move to VPCs, I lose the niceness I had of the account construct, now the billing responsibility and the attribution of resources to a given tenant becomes more my responsibility once I fall into this model. right? So now I have to uh, introduce tagging or introduce some other scheme to say which resources belong to which tenants. Uh, but it's not particularly complex, just something more you have to think about. A variation I don't see very often but I've, I've seen it a few times is the notion of subnet. So we get even more granular here and we create separate subnets for each tenant, uh, and then we use whatever the subnet constructs are to control flow in and out of, in and out of those for each tenant. Again, tagging is essential here. Um, these are, these are, I would say the VPC model is uh, uh, probably uh, he- very heavily used by a lot of customers. Again, have to think about how it's going to scale long term and how many tenants you're going to have to know whether that's going to be a long-term fit for you, though. The last one is layered isolation. And layered isolation often looks like a, an evolution to me. Right, So I start out with this notion of full stack on the, uh, on the left-hand side. Um, and all I've got is my onboarding and my administration as a shared experience. And then over time I'll say, you know, the web tier of my solution uh, c- uh, can, be, can be shared now. I've only got static assets. Um, uh, I, we can refactor a little bit and make our web tier very much a shared, multi-tenant construct. So let's it push the boundary a little further with our solution, and we'll have onboarding and the web tier both be multi-tenant. But the app tier, either based on how it's built or based on the requirements of your customers, will remain a single tier and so, sorry, as um, single tenant, and they'll have their own storage as well. And then over time, you might say, well, uh, we think we now can extend the reach of that. All the way down to the app tier, right? We can make the app tier multi-tenant. We have found a way to do that. And you see this sort of gradual evolution here of saying, Where is the boundary of, of multi-tenancy in my environment? It isn't always this clean. Sometimes it's a pocket of these services And a pocket of these services. And you see people sort of in layers introducing Multi-tenancy where it didn't exist before. The last one, which I'm very passionate about, Is serverless SaaS, right? If we're going to talk about isolation, um, I feel like serverless is, has a very compelling story in here, right? With serverless, uh, if you're, if you, in fact, if you're not attending serverless and you're interested in SaaS here, I recommend that you find a session on serverless uh, and just get very familiar with the moving parts of AWS's serverless story because I think it's, it's a very natural fit uh, for SaaS environments. And so here, a very typical stack. We've got S3 and some buckets, and we're using CloudFront to serve from the edge. Um, And CloudFront may be giving us our DDoS. And that's all the same things we would normally do. But then we're going to rely on the API gateway here as the entry point to all the services that represent our SaaS solution. So I'm going to get throttling and metering and all the goodness of versioning management of my REST APIs all pushed out at scale to the managed uh, API gateway service. And then all the functions of my application will be implemented as a series of Lambda functions, and then eventually storage sits on the other side of this. And the reason this one is very compelling to me, besides its sort of optimal use of resources uh, and the fact that functions, when they run, I only pay for them if they're actually running, is it gives me a very compelling way to address the isolation story without having to introduce entire um, stacks for, uh, for each tenant. Here I can say, I've got a set of functions. Do you want to run them in isolation for a tenant? Okay. Run them in a context in an IAM context where you're only running in the context of that tenant. And then if whichever function that tenant happens to be running, yes, you'll pay for the execution of that function. But there's no notion of cold servers or or sort of parts of your stack that are just waiting around for activity. That even with elasticity, when it comes down, there's some footprint. Here, with Lambda, if, if I don't calling any of those functions, I have a tenant that's relatively quiet and doing nothing for certain parts of the day, even though they're isolated, they're consuming no compute resources for me because they're not invoking anything on Lambda. Um, so for me, this represents the sort of best mix of an isolation story uh, that is compelling to your customer if they're willing to accept that flavor of isolation and still a, a great match of infrastructure consumption and tenant consumption here. It's also, by the way, I should mention a great fault tolerance Story here also because just the life cycle of these functions And the granularity of these functions, you tend to get a Better, more fault tolerant experience, and you can imagine In zero downtime kind of uh, sash universes, anytime I can get Better at fault tolerance, it's a plus. So compute partitioning and this idea of tenant isolation, um, I hope you realize that uh, for me, one of the challenges I see People have is they assume tenant isolation is for all their tenants, because some of their tenants are already in that model. I was at a customer and the customer said, oh, we have five key uh, members of our uh, of our client base who all need siloed environments, therefore everything we have to do must be siloed. But the business side of the house was saying, well, we're trying to address new markets and we have new kinds of customers who may not demand silo. And, in fact, we may have a better business model if we could offer the solution to them in a shared model. So, for me, don't sort of project from the fact that you already have silo um, to, to the fact that everybody, therefore, has to be siloed. Challenge that. Um, the other bit here is if you can start with pooled and then work your way to, 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 uh, to siloed environments and maintain uh, that integrity of no one-off kind of customization, that's a really good path to go down. Um, whatever you do, whichever isolation scheme you do, you use, create one single aggregated view of system health and activity, right? You have to be able to have, for the ops side of your universe, something that aggregates all this information and presents it as one view of health and activity because we still want to have an... If we're going to have an agile experience for our ops people, we want to hide the details of the fact that it's fully uh, distributed away from them or at least give them better tools for managing it. Um, uh, the other bit here is you, better, you have to think about limits, right? AWS has default limits for services. Well, if you're automatically provisioning these services on the fly and provisioning these entire environments, how do the limits get set? Uh, and how are you going to control the adjustment of those limits as you create and introduce new tenants? Using tags is important, and in general, just don't let partitioning be the enemy of agi- agility here. Right? Keep your eye on agility and, and make that a goal. The last bit we're going to touch on here is data partitioning schemes, uh, and data partitioning, like I said, in fact, I've just uh, released a white paper on storage schemes for uh, data partitioning on AWS, and. Um, What we find is this is an area that is probably most talked about and the most literature is out there for. And the patterns for how people partition here data are very common, right? But what's different here is that the AWS services and the kinds of storage services that come along, they all have different nuances to how they want to implement data partitioning. Um, But if we just sort of generalize the three flavors of data partitioning that there are, you'll find that these very much mirror the overall things we had with pool and bridge and, and silos. So on the left, you'll say uh, in, the, in the sort of silo model, uh, conceptually, I'm going to have a separate instance or a separate database for every user. Uh, and in the bridge model, I'm going to say, no, all the users go into and all the tenants go into one database, but I'm going to allow schema level variation. So each tenant could have their own schema. And then finally, in the pooled model, I'm going to say, no, all the tenants are all in one database and they're all in the shared schema, and I'm going to use some kind of indexing to partition or shard those tenants. Now, one of the things people don't think about, though, in this problem is they'll say, oh, we're going to go all in, we're going to go shared, we're going to do some multi-tenant model, we'll use a foreign key inside of RDS or something to partition our data. We're all good, now it's sharded, We're all we're all set. But what they don't account for is the fact that the distribution of data for tenants in a multi-tenant environment is rarely equal. right? You almost always have some set of tenants who are imposing a disproportionate load on your system and they're going to have a disproportionate effect on the keys in your environment and the distribution of the keys in your environment. So if three tenants are huge and a hundred are small, those three could be imposing a load that's both going to both raise your costs of your solution um, but also impact the, the, the other 100, right? So whatever you come up with as a, um, hot, in terms of a solution for addressing hotkey, you have to consider from the beginning how data distribution and how the size of the data and the nature of the data will affect your sharding scheme. Uh, and what, what the common approach I'm seeing people apply right now is to introduce the notion of a shard of shards. So they introduce a level of indirection where they can insert themselves into that scheme and they can control how and when the data is sharded. So here I can say tenant one has 10 shards because they have this really huge data footprint, but tenant two only has two shards because they have a much smaller data footprint. And now I can intelligently decide which shards are assigned to which tenants and I get away around and controlling distribution and I prevent myself from throwing resources at my storage constructs to try to overcome these data distribution problems. Now on RDS, um, multi-tenancy is probably the most straightforward scheme you'll find, right? Uh, We'll use an instance, those instances will be an instance per tenant. Yes, we might think about how we shard the instances and how we distribute them, but it's a pretty straightforward scheme. Um, I want to do the bridge model. I'll have a sh- common instance, but I'll have separate tables, so I'll name the tables and, and, uh, and scope the tables on a tenant-by-tenant basis. And then, finally, if I'm in the pooled model on the right-hand side, um, I'll have everything in one instance. I'll have uh, common tables, and I'll use some sort of foreign key. Uh, pretty, pretty straightforward model. DynamoDB is, by contrast, a very different beast here and has a very different set of considerations. Right? With DynamoDB, I have one global namespace for all the tables within a region. Right? I don't have the notion or the construct of an instance or a database. Those, it's just one big managed service in a region. And for that account, I have one global na- for an account, I have one global namespace, right, for all the tables. So how do I implement a silo model inside of uh, DynamoDB? Well, then I have to I have to rely on IAM. And I have to rely on tables as the way of achieving that silo. So here I end up creating a group of tables for each individual tenant. I end up naming them based on that. And then I end up surrounding them with some kind of IAM policy that says, these tables are owned by this tenant. And that's about as close as I'm going to get to silo without something more exotic. The more exotic model but is not a scalable model would be to say, I'm going to create separate linked accounts for every single um, tenant. And then I can actually have a shared name. But now I run into the scaling issues of, will linked count scale with me effectively? So I tend to steer people more this way than towards the linked account model. And then I wanted to show DynamoDB and the pool model, but I want to show DynamoDB and the pool model and factor in this reality that we want to avoid hotkeys. Right? And for me, that means introducing another table in DynamoDB that becomes my tenant lookup table. So when you look at this slide, the top, the top table is really my tenant lookup table, and that's how I'm resolving um, what the sharding scheme is on a, for each individual tenant. So I've only shown one item here. You can obviously imagine all the tenants would be listed in this blue table. And then for each table that's managed by that tenant, um, I'm going to have different sharding data that describes how that, ten- how that particular table's um, sharded. Because you can imagine even table to table, the load profile of a tenant might be different. How big, uh, how, what the sharding scheme needs to be for the customer table for this tenant might be different than it needs to be for the account table. Um, so I want to take that into consideration. So if you look at the customer table, you'll see I have three shards. Um, I've got some notion of what the size of those shards are. And then finally some collection of shard IDs. So now when I look down in the actual customer ID, My partition key isn't a tenant ID. My partition key now is the shard ID, right? And this indirection of going through the tenant lookup table to figure out which collection of of shard IDs belongs to a given tenant is a level of indirection you sort of have to bite off if you're going to avoid the hotkey problem. And there's many approaches to this. People are round robin and they'll do all kinds of bits around collecting metrics, around how to adjust these, uh, these shards on the fly. I also see people manu- manually adjusting these sometimes. But uh, don't, don't overlook this. The other bit of this is think about optimizing for real time here, right? So imagine you're running DynamoDB and multi-tenant has all of these um, fluctuation in IOPS that are going on, right? And you have to decide, well, where do I set IOPS to in a multi-tenant environment for DynamoDB that gives me the best sort of cost and efficiency profile Well, there's, you can't set it to some static level because What the load right now will look different in an hour and it will look different from that an hour after that So what I want you to do is look at real-time kind of tools like this is using a tool called An open source tool Open uh, dyna- Dynamic DynamoDB And Dynamic DynamoDB will actually let me set a policies and a set of um, mechanisms that will track the actual activity that's going on in the tenants and will real-time adjust the IOPS based on the load so that I keep my IOPS just good enough without over-provisioning. And I'd like to see this strategy generally as a storage strategy across multi-tenant environments if we're trying to optimize for cost. The last bit, and this is a general slide that... that, um, is in my storage bit, but it really is a a more global concept right here, which is, in general, all these mechanisms we've talked about, security, we've talked about data partitioning, um, and tenant context, Uh, however they flow through my system, I absolutely want to hide the awareness of multi-tenancy from the everyday developer of my system. Right. So if if I show up on day one at your organization and you say, hop in here and start writing a brand new service for my system, What do I have to know about multi-tenancy? What do I have to know about how to log? What do I have to know about how to get to the storage in this case? How How do I resolve security? I want all those bits sort of hidden away from me and surrounded and isolated from me and abstracted away from me with frameworks and tools. And this, to me, data partitioning is the natural place to have this discussion because whichever partitioning scheme I choose, I don't want the author of a service to know anything about that partitioning scheme. The last bit we talk about, just briefly, I said I wouldn't hit the, the sort of operational view, but I felt like I really have to uh, emphasize the importance of at least one dimension of, of the operational view, and that's management and monitoring. Because to me, when I talk to people about SaaS and management and monitoring, their first reaction is, you know, I have good tools. I'm using Splunk and Sumo Logic or Kibana. And there's awesome tools out there that will let us aggregate logs and, and see trends and activity inside of our solutions. And we tend to assume I'm all set, I'm good for a SaaS environment. But my experience is that when I actually have been out building these SaaS solutions, that even though these tools are great, that, that I still have to go through another layer of customization and another layer of, of configuration of these environments to give me the multi-tenant Uh, context that I'm really looking for. So if I'm an ops person, I want to see a a cross-tenant view of performance and activity that shows me in a cross-tenant way what's really performing well, where are the hot spots at a multi-tenant level, but I also want to be able to say, hey, if somebody calls and a tenant calls even though the multi-tenant health is looking good, this tenant is having problems, how can I drill in in this experience and in these tools and see on a tenant by tenant basis where a tenant may be experiencing problems and where they may need some help. Um, and so for me, it's more about taking these tools and asking yourself, what, what's the ops experience? What's the dev experience, right? I, I've been in the dev side of this one, and we say, hey, we've got this great uh, tool, and we're digging in there, and I can see all the services are running. I know which services are healthy and so on. got all these logs I can comb through with all these great analytics, but I can't assemble a multi-tenant view of health of the system in a way that really helps me figure out what's going on and how to fix it. And imagine now an environment where your whole business is all in, multi-tenant shared, and if something goes down, all your customers go down. You're going to be, want to be ahead of that curve. You're going to want to be proactively seeing problems before they show up. And then you want to be able to see them in a tenant context. This is just an extension of that. I guess my, my point here is that um, as part of instrumenting these environments and setting up your system to capture all these bits, that it isn't just about capturing the traditional metrics you have, right? It's not just the log data. It's not just uh, CloudWatch metrics. It often means instrumenting the actual services of your solution with more knowledge about what's actually going on in your system to be able to build an effective management and monitoring view. So what am I actually logging? What are the metrics? And I find people actually come up with their own metrics and invent new metrics to say, these are the health metrics of our environment based on what we know about our domain and the patterns of our services and the patterns that users are using. And I'm instrumenting these custom metrics into my actual services, and I'm aggregating that up and creating views and dashboards that are things that are more than just what's the latency, am I throwing errors, what's CPU, what's memory. I get these domain-specific concepts that boil to the surface. So what's the overall takeaways from the session? Well, no matter what you're doing here, no matter which approach you take with SAS, generally the goal for SAS is to achieve agility. So don't let the technology sort of get in the way of your agility goals. And I guess I'm, I would say... Try to bake agility into every decision you make. Or if agility is not your goal and you're, it's just a good delivery model but you're not bite, biting off, acknowledge that as well. Um, but And that might push you uh, somewhere on the on the spectrum here. Um, leverage a third-party solutions wherever you can. Third-party solutions are essential to this. Metering, billing, identity, all these different tools can have a huge impact on the productivity and the innovation you get in your solutions. Um, and then... Let, I, I really like to see the business and the technical sides of the house really pushing one another in a, in a, when you're developing a SaaS architecture. right? As an architect, ask yourself, what are the ways that I need to enable the business? Not just because we're going out like typically you're launching a new SaaS solution. You're going to launch uh, you know, with three tiers and you're not to have given a lot of thought to pricing or different ways people are going to want isolation. Try to push the business side for where those points of inflection are that are going to add value to your SaaS customers. Um, I I also would like to see more than identity used here to achieve isolation. I'd like to see IAM baked into that. So I'd like to see IAM enforcing all flavors of isolation and and preventing uh, multi-tenant access wherever you can get it. Um, And then from a storage perspective, hopefully you saw that the distribution of data and the irregularities in the distribution of data for tenants can have a huge impact. On the storage and sharding schemes that you choose and so think about those those profiles of those tenants data and think about how that might affect the, the sharding scheme that you select uh, And then the last bit is all this monitoring Metering metrics right SaaS environments live and breathe Based on uh, on metrics right you're tuning and tweaking and fixing and solving based on whatever good metrics you have Flowing into your system so invest heavily in those metrics rely on those metrics and use them to find the path for your system as you go forward. Anyway, um, hopefully that gives you just a general, good high-level view of what, uh, what options you have when you're thinking about architecture. Clearly, there's a lot more moving parts to this discussion. There's a SaaS optimization bit after this. Uh, later today, there's a bit on SaaS optimization if you'd like to, a deeper dive on some optimization strategies. But I hope this was helpful to you, and I really appreciate you attending. Uh, have a good, great day and uh, enjoy the conference.